And now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who loves the Super Bowl! Hi, folks, and welcome back to The Larry Miller Show. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And by the way, I'm not someone who always loves the Super Bowl, and I'll tell you why in a little bit, but let's face it, it's a great holiday. Come on, it's a great American thing to do. And if you can't get that far, well, you're you're in the wrong country. But boy, oh boy, is it wonderful here now. It's gorgeous today, and... Well, we're not on Milleronia. We're back at Stately Miller, Miller Manor. And let me just say that again. And we're not on Milleronia. We're back at Stately Miller Manor on the mainland. And there's a reason for that, too. And I'll tell you about that as well. At any rate, though, we're back here on the mainland. And, oh, it's gorgeous today here in Southern California. And that was, of course... The John Mahoney Orchestra and the Tatiana Romanova Dancers, featuring boy tenor Brad Simpson asking the musical question, When it comes to your fancy fried chicken dinners, why have two drinks beforehand at a different place instead of at the same place? Well, Brad, that's a pretty good question. And uh, the Colonel and I both agreed. Because I always say that, you know, and it's the truth, you know, we're saving this money for our our fancy fried chicken dinner with two drinks beforehand at a different place. But there's a reason for that then. Why do it at a different place? Well, why not just do it at home then? I mean, why not bake up three TV dinners and get a few six packs? Well, that would be fine with me. But this, the point is, Brad and everyone listening, these are are fancy nights for us. Not because we're going to, well, big fancy places, but, well, the first year we got shaves at the same barber shop. It was just a regular barber shop, and we got razor shaves, real razors, and uh, that was uh, that's on Hollywood Boulevard and uh, back in the Los Feliz area. And we brought with us our suits and ties and shiny shoes that we got shined, and we got a nice shave, and we changed into our fancy clothes in the back of the barbershop. And then, well, we had a wonderful night. We we went to Musso and Frank for our cocktails. It's a great place. Well, back the other way on Hollywood Boulevard, and it's wonderful. It's been here since, what, 1914, 1915? And it became a very well-known, very well-attended. And it was always one of the greatest places in the Hollywood of old. And it still is. It's wonderful. And, by the way, it's not a small thing to me that this is where Wyatt Earp hung out. He passed away in 1929. And, uh, well, he was someone who knew something about saloons. And he liked, he loved Musso and Frank, and they sure liked having him there. Can you imagine that? So we could have, 
well, we could have our two drinks beforehand at the same bar Wyatt Earp used. If that's, well... That's not good enough. I, I don't. I don't know what is. And then we uh, we had big plans to go to also Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles for dinner. So the the point is that it's not that these are fancy places, but that they they're fancy for us, and we make them fancy for them by really taking it to heart. So in any case, Brad, good question. Why not do it, you know, why why not just have the two drinks beforehand at the same place? Well, a place that makes good drinks doesn't always have good food, does it? And a place that makes good food doesn't always make a good martini, does it? And when you can stand where Wyatt Earp stood, that's pretty good right there. In any case, good question, Brad. And uh, by the way, I mentioned John Mahoney there. And uh, what a wonderful fella and a great actor. And he just passed away a couple of days ago. He was 77 years old. You know him from a thousand things, from TV and movies. And everyone who met him always said, what a great guy. He was born in Blackpool, England in 1940. To uh, He was the seventh of eight children to his parents, Margaret and Reg Mahoney, and they actually moved out of Manchester to go down south in England. This is, well, during World War II, and uh, they they wanted to avoid the Nazi bombing. And uh, he followed his sister ultimately after the war. His sister was a war bride, which is, as I was saying to the colonel before, that's not a phrase you hear a lot, a war bride. But it was big in those days because a lot of the American soldiers would see, well, beautiful English girls, and they'd say, maybe she'd like to be my war bride. Probably not the phrase they used at the time. (laughs) Maybe she'd like a pint of Guinness with me and a chance to stroll along holding hands. Probably not that either. (laughs) Their thoughts were, hey, I've got an idea. But she was a a war bride, and they moved to America, and uh, that's where John Mahoney came Joined them, and he, and he joined the American Army, by the way, and that's how he became an American citizen and lost his English accent. It was in our army. He didn't start acting till he was 40. Isn't that interesting? And he met John Malkovich, who thought he was terrific, and talked him into joining the Steppenwolf Theater. But boy, so many good movies, and so many I'm going to, well, I'm going to mention one a little later. But you probably know him best as Frasier's father from the TV show Frasier. And uh, Frasier and Niles had that that dad, and he was an ex-policeman who was shot and wounded in the leg. And But uh, he was great. God bless him. John, you were always terrific. And uh, I mentioned, of course, that the, uh, the dances are run this week by the great Tatiana Romanova, which was the character's name of... Daniela Bianchi in the movie From Russia with Love. And she was wonderful. She was a terrific actress. And and uh, she played what, what they used to call, who's the new Bond girl for the next Bond movie? 
and that was this was with Sean Connery, and she was wonderful and lovely. The producers of the Bond movies saw her because she was Miss Universe, or came in second in the Miss Universe contest, and they well they noticed her, which of course they did. You know that's another thing. Let's see, well, we're we're producers of the James Bond movies. Maybe we should notice her. Not a bad idea. And uh, also starring in that movie was the great Lottie Lenya, who played the bad guy. She's a terrific actress, wonderful actress. And uh, in any case, I like them when we were talking about Mac the Knife. Colonel Jeff had mentioned that the names used of the women, some of the women killed by Mac the Knife were... Uh, Suki, and we both remembered one and then the other. Suki Tawdry, Jenny Diver, and Lottie Lenya, and old Lucy Brown, as he sings. I don't know, think the others were real people, but, well, Lottie Lenya sure was. And uh, in any case, it's worth remembering fondly Daniela Bianchi and the great Lottie Lenya, and John Mahoney. God bless you all, and, well, rest in peace, John. And that brings me to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. This is a good one. I love telling you jokes, and uh, I think this one you, you might want to pass along to your friends and loved ones. Uh, but the colonel and I both like this one. It's uh, it starts out because the first Jewish president is elected. So there's now a Jewish president in the United States. They're coming up to inauguration day, and he calls his mom back home in New York and uh, in Brooklyn, and he calls her up and just says, uh, "Mom, hi. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I just wanted you to know I." I'm planning on. I want you to come down for the, the the inauguration, and she said, "Well, I'm just here with a friend talking." And he said, "Mommy, what's the inauguration? I, you know, I want you to come down for it, for goodness' sake." And uh, she says, "Well, well, you know, I, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's 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 it's, it's such a, well, to, to get a flight for that 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 time of year, just it gets it seems so busy." Mom, I'll send Air Force One down for you. That's you know. I'm the new president of the United States. They're going to inaugurate me. And she said, well, I don't know. Once I get to Washington, then I got to get a cab somewhere at the airport. Ma, I'll send the limousine from the White House to pick you up. And the driver will be there at the gate with a sign with your name. He'll take everything, take the bags, take everything. And she says, well, but it's so busy for an inauguration. It's what kind of... Hotel or motel would I stay in? Ma, I'm going to be the president. You'll stay with me. You'll stay at the White House. I'll put you in Lincoln's bedroom. You know, how about that? I said, all right, all right. Well, listen, I'm going to go. She says, I've got my friend here, and we're just going to make some tea and, and, and have that. Okay, Ma. She hangs up, and the friend says to her, uh, who was that? And she says, Oh, that was my son. And the friend brightens up and says, The doctor? And she says, No, the other one. (laughs) 
That's a pretty good joke, isn't it? We got a good laugh out of that. It's just really not that impressive to her that, uh, Mom, I'm the president. Well, but, but, well, to uh, Jewish families and all families, and to be a son who's a doctor, a daughter who goes all the way and the same thing, she becomes a doctor, that's a pretty, pretty deep thing. So anyway, I got a kick out of that, and I hope you did too. And that brings me to my second favorite part of the show. The Poetry Corner. (laughs) Ah, the Poetry Corner. This is a good one. This is called Scotland's Winter by Edwin Muir. He's uh, the great Edwin Muir. He was... uh, well, Scottish, and he was born in 1887 and died in 1959. And as Colonel Jeff said to me, he said, this may be a little bit grim, this poem, but, well, winter can be grim. And uh, we, plus the life he had in Scotland was not easy. That uh, he, was, he was born there, and within the same short period of time, his father, mother, and brothers all died and then when he got old enough, he had a succession of very unpleasant jobs in offices and factories, including a factory that turned bones into charcoal. How about that? How do you like them apples? And, uh, well, then he wound up, he got married, and his life turned around. He and his wife collaborated on English translations of German authors. And as I said, and the next day, World War II started. So it was always something with him. But uh, God bless him, he's a great guy. So here we go with Scotland's Winter. Now the ice lays its smooth claws on the sill. The sun looks from the hill, helmed in his winter casket, and sweeps his arctic sword across the sky. The water at the mill sounds more hoarse and dull. The miller's daughter walking by with frozen fingers soldered to her basket seems to be knocking upon a hundred leagues of floor with her light heels and mocking Percy and Douglas dead and Bruce on his burial bed where he lies white as May with wars and leprosy and all the kings before. This land was kingless, and all the singers before. This land was songless. This land that with its dead and living waits the judgment day. But they, the powerless dead, listening can hear no more. Then a hard tapping on the floor, a little overhead, of common heels that do not know whence they come or where they go, and are content with their poor frozen life and shallow banishment. Yeah, that's a little a little grim there, but uh, then Edwin Muir met a nice woman and got married, and they started on German translations. But anyway, folks, I hope you like that one, As I, and as always, if you do, Take a look at it and pass it on to someone else. 
Scotland's Winter by Edwin Muir. And uh, now I'm at my third favorite part of the show. M-M-M, Triple M, the magic movie moment. Well, folks, this is a great movie. And I hope you know it well, or that just talking about it and thinking about it will get you to look it up. It's from 1987, called Moonstruck, directed by Norman Jewison. What a great director, and he's done so much, starring Cher and Nicolas Cage and Olympia Dukakis and Vincent Gardinia and Danny Aiello and, well... And John Mahoney as Perry in a great part. The college professor in the Italian restaurant who can't stop chasing college girls in his classes and has a couple of great scenes with Olympia Dukakis. You know, it's it means the world, frankly, to know. She, she was so good in that movie, and they all were. I was saying to Colonel Jeff before, that's one of those movies where it's so good, no matter what the nationality is or no matter what the ethnic group is, you want to be that after you see it. It doesn't matter whether it's Swedish or black or Irish. It just doesn't matter. You think, boy, that's so good in that culture, in that neighborhood, with those people. I want to be that. And uh, you know what? In this case, with John Mahoney and the character as Perry, he was so wonderful. What a smile he had. And he's playing a college professor at NYU because the movie takes place down in, in well, in Little Italy, in New York. And uh, Olympia Dukakis is out alone for her bite at this favorite Italian restaurant of her and uh, that she just loves. So she's alone. And John Mahoney, we notice and we see in a little moment, is... Uh, having a, a bit of a fight with his girlfriend, a young, pretty woman. And he's saying, I don't know what you mean. And, and she said, you know, and she, oh, her blood is up. And she's, well, you do this, I, 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 and that. And she throws a drink right on him. Maybe it's a glass of water. Maybe it's her drink. And she just throws it right on him, on his chest with the jacket and the shirt. And he's not thrown by that. She storms out and... uh he smiles again and just shrugs to people watching him. And the great Joe Grafazzi, by the way, is the waiter in that scene. You've seen him in a thousand things. and uh, But he winds up talking, John Mahoney, he winds up talking to the nearby Olympi Olympia Dukakis, who, well, frankly, uh, she shakes her head because she she sees right through him. And he's, well... An older man, he's about, he's playing, he was about 45, I guess, in that movie. And he's a handsome fella, and he's got a nice sport jacket and shirt and tie on. They're a little wet, but he's got, and he smiles, and he asks, may, may I, uh, you mind if I come over to join you for dinner? It's better than eating alone. And she says, sure, come on over. Folks, they talk, and you and I can see everything Olympia Dukakis sees. We like this fella, and we want to, but the way it's written and the way John Mahoney plays it, it's you want to say, what's wrong with you? He, He's not married, and he has no kids, and 
Well, you want to say, and he says to Olympia that, uh, well, that's the way I like it. I I like, uh, he's a poetry professor at the university there, and he sees, if he sees a pretty student in his class, well, he'll probably ask her out, and she'll probably go, and it'll probably be fine until it ends just like that one. And you, it's wonderfully moving. Because here in the middle of this story about, well, love in little Italy and so many great characters. And he uh, offers to, says uh, they wind up walking home together. She's going to walk him back to his apartment. And uh, they get there on the corner. And he's so likable. And he's smiling again. And But it's a real smile. It's the smile of this man, this character not even of John Mahoney. And he invites Olympia up to, uh, well, let's have a drink. Come on, you want to come up and uh, well, we'll have a drink? And, and then, But again, you and I and Olympia see right through him. And she's essentially saying and says it to him, what are you doing? What, this, what are you going to go to do? What does this mean to you? And, you know, you're just like a little boy, part of it is. He says, well, you don't know what I am yet. And she says to him, I do. I Yes, I do. You're a little boy who just doesn't want to grow up. And he gets a little embarrassed, but with the same nice smile. And they separate, and that's that's it. And he was wonderful in a wonderful movie. John Mahoney as Perry, the college professor who can't stop chasing college girls in his classes. And you know what, folks? No one could do that better than John Mahoney. God bless you. Rest in peace. And that's a great movie, by the way. If you haven't seen it in a while, see it again. It's just so wonderful, Moonstruck. In fact, the colonel and I were saying we were remembering when Cher slaps Nicolas Cage in the face in his apartment. She, you know... Megan made him a blood red steak because he's so low, and he's so and he, she cracks him right in the face. The reason I'm laughing is it ethnically it, it feels so Italian because she cracks him, and I mean it's not an actor's crack in the face. She, you know, hauls off and says, cracks him in the face in his kitchen there, and says, "Snap out of it!" And he, what I love, and the same with Colonel Jeff, he doesn't budge, doesn't move an inch. Meaning, just as a strong young Italian man, he doesn't say, ow, or hey, you hit me, or hold his hand up to his face. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't budge. He just stands there and just talks right back and says, you don't understand. I got to get the... And I remember thinking, and Jeff agrees that, uh, you know what? That was perfectly played. And one of these days, I'd like to... I'll run into Nicolas Cage and we'll meet, and I'll say to him at the proper time... I've got to ask you, whose idea was that? Was that yours to be that guy and react that way, or was that something the director, who's a great director, Norman Jewison, was it was it the director saying to you, you know what, just play this, think about this, and uh, well, it could be either one or both of them. In any case, a wonderful movie. Good work to all of you, and good work to you, John Mahoney, and. Uh, 
We just passed the Super Bowl, and I've never been to a Super Bowl, but on one of these days I'd like to, I think. Who goes? I was talking about that with the colonel before. Who even goes to these things? Businessmen and super fans and super drinkers, I guess. That's, uh, that's, you could just say that. Boy, they probably, in those tents and all the bars in the area, they probably just go to town. I think the only really happy people there are the hookers, because uh, which was meant as a compliment, because the fellows drink up a storm, and all the hotel workers stand there grinning with their hands out, waiting for super tips. But you know what? I don't know if I'd need what they go for there. I'm not sure. If it, if it comes up, maybe you'd do the same thing. If somehow somebody said to you, hey, how about a couple of tickets to the Super Bowl? And you probably know they'll have it in different cities, one different city every year. So this past few days ago, of course, it was in Minneapolis. And then it'll be well, New York, Dallas, Los Angeles, Seattle, and uh, Jacksonville, all over the place. And uh, because it couldn't have been, it was cold enough in Minneapolis to really shut out. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want to stroll around in that weather. That was, in fact, not possible, probably, to stroll around. But uh, it reminded me that, uh, well, I've never been to a Super Bowl. I've been to a couple of good baseball things. I I saw Chris Chambliss hit that pennant-winning homer at Yankee Stadium. And uh, what a great night that was. That was their first pennant in 12 years, and I was there with my friend Mal. And we saw something that I thought was just great baseball. After the game, those were still the days when they didn't mind if the fans just streamed onto the field and they would take, well, it's, you've probably seen all those, uh, you know, film shots of fans running after a guy still rounding the bases. And you know what, though? And they take well, parts of the outfield, parts of the grass there. They try to pick up anything they can to uh, for souvenirs. I was going to say to steal. But you know what? It's I guess it's both. But they didn't mind that. And the cops are there on the field level. They come down at every exit. There are two exits in the outfield, one in right field, one in left field. I think that's about it because the the, the cops aren't going to let them in the, the dugouts and, and into the locker room. And that's real good duty for a policeman, by the way. They, in New York... You have to be a hero cop to get your choice of something like that. When I was in uh, the dinner party, the Neil Simon play on Broadway, which was a big thing, we had a great guy named Patrick who also had his choice. He could have been a stadium cop for a while. He saved a lot of tourists, and he had a big gun battle with bad guys and uh, saved them, and he got wounded, but he was healing, and he had healed completely, and he was fine. And he uh, he chose Broadway, the Broadway show area, to uh, be a cop and, you know, and uh, to hang out in a couple of the theaters, make sure everything was okay there. And then he thought, as he told me, he was a great guy. He said, plus I figured I'd meet uh, some stars and I'd meet, uh, well, all the people in these uh, plays. And I smiled at him and said, how'd that work out? And he uh, he just looked back and said, yeah, well, you know, it wasn't as as joyful as he thought. But you know what, folks? 
I saw with my friend Mal, we were at the second level in Yankee Stadium on the left field side, and we looked across as people were streaming after the game. And the stands weren't, didn't have anybody in them. The people were, had already moved out. But we were there just with our arms folded, leaning on our, our chins, leaning our chins on, on our hands. And across the field, perfectly right across the field, a bunch of cops, five or six cops. And these, of course, uniformed cops. And uh, they're waiting. They're just guiding and guarding and making sure nobody's, you know, trying to slice a pipe or something like that, you know. I mean, underground. And one kid, uh, we saw this. It was just a great New York City kid moment. One kid uh, fan was still running around on the field like everybody else. And his souvenir was going to be, he was about 12 years old, and he decided his souvenir was going to be one of the outfield walls. You've seen those, not just at Yankee Stadium on TV or maybe in person, but of course, all these, the stadia have these. And he had picked, I don't know whether they're held on by Velcro or big metal loops and hooks and uh, how they're ever taken off and cleaned, I suppose. And this kid just, God bless him, he walks over, takes one of these things off. This thing was twice as long as he was tall and twice as wide as he was tall. I mean, it was just how he even thought of this. In any case, he takes it off, and he's carrying it right at the cops at the right field exit because he's going to go home with it. That's his souvenir. Now, here's a great. this is great for the New York City cops and great for him as a kid, too, because they don't move. They don't know one, none, none of the cops. You know, they're, uh, they've been cops in very tough situations, and they don't budge as he's walking at them. Nobody runs over and says, uh, hey, what are you doing? What are you, crazy? But put that down. Put that down right now. And uh, they don't they don't move. And one cop, the, the leader of the crew there, and the other four or five are behind him there, just they're standing on the warning track dirt. And uh, the leader cop, they don't say a word. Now, remember, we're across the field. And we see everything that happens now perfectly. The kid walks up. The lead cop, he walks up to the lead cop, and, the, and uh, the head cop there doesn't say a word to him, doesn't motion or anything, just looks at him. And the kid, well, we would do the same thing too. The kid just stops walking with the outfield wall under his arm, and he just stops walking. And then after a few seconds, we see the, the cop says, where'd you get that? Now, we can't hear the voices, obviously, but it was so obvious that uh, he, you know, chucks his head up and the, the chin just, where'd you get that? Now, here's the great part of this kid. He gives it a shot. He's standing there and he starts, we see him. Well, my brother told me that if you get, he's giving it a shot. He's not giving up. He's doesn't. He's not, put, you know, running away. He's not doing anything. He's he he speaks for about thirty seconds, which is a long time. And the the cop is standing there again, not nodding, just looking at him. And the other cops behind him, just looking at him too. And uh, so the kid 
finishes his little opening speech there. That's why I knew I could take this, because they said if you could get something like this for a souvenir, then you could take that home. And uh, there's a pause. The kid is finished. And then <laughs> the cop, the lead cop, we just saw with his finger motions at that and where it came off the wall, and he says to the kid, put it back. And that's all he says. Not mad, not anything. Put it back and points with his finger over there. And here's the beautiful part, the, the really great part. Another two seconds go by, and the kid, what does he do? What would you do? The kid gives it another shot. He goes in again, and he's saying, no, I don't think you understand, because I know in the paper, in the Daily News, it said that, you know, if you get whatever you get, if the Yankees win, you know, and of course, boy, they won, they won a great game. Chambers hit a great homer, and uh, the kid is going in again. Now, at this point, the cops behind, you know, are kind of like one starts tapping his toe into the, into the warning track dirt, and uh, another one just with a smile, just shakes his head. Because, you know, all of these cops really were thinking what my, me and Mal were thinking of, get a load of this kid. This is this kid's all right. This 12-year-old, not, not buckling down to anyone, let alone us. And now the lead cop, after this second speech, the lead cop, now with a smile, just points again and says, put it back. And the kid... Looks at him, looks at the other cops, and then he does, well, what a tough kid like that would do. He just, he put it back. He picked it up, and you couldn't carry that thing. Nobody could. <laughs> Mr. Mister Olympia couldn't carry that thing. And he did, he, he put it back. And you know what? That was, the game was wonderful, but that was just terrific. And seeing those cops who wanted to say, you know, they wanted to say to him, look, this was uh, our shift, you know, the shift's over now, and, uh, well, the five of us are going to, you know, stroll into one of the bars near the stadium there, we'll have just a beer or two, and then we're all going to go home. We'll go back to our station, switch back into our civvies, and go home. But they don't say that. They just say, get a load of this kid. And so did so did we. So did I, and so did Mal. So... You know what, though? That's why I, I wanted, though, to have, well, a perfect Super Bowl Sunday. Nothing's perfect, and you know that, I know that. But this past Super Bowl, I was working that night in Hermosa Beach at the Comedy and Magic Club. And uh, some friends of mine, uh, Leno and Jimmy Brogan and Jim Edwards, are always on that show, and that's their show. It's it's Well, it's Jay's show. And... Uh, you know what, and then he asked me to be on the show because I was there the night before, and I said, sure, you know what, I'd love to. And so I was going to be there. That show starts at 7, but I thought to myself, well, here in Southern California, the game starts at 3, and I could see the beginning of the game at home and have a bite there and then just jump in the shower at halftime and, and head down uh, to uh, Hermosa Beach. And, folks, what happened then was that it was wonderful. We woke up, and we weren't going to any fancy Super Bowl party. And uh, my wife said, uh, you know what? I think uh, I'll go out and get a few things. I think a nice big chili would uh, 
big pot of chili would be good for a Super Bowl. And I, I thought, wow, sounds great. And uh, I just did, you know, and plus it fits in with my plan perfectly. And uh, I thought, you know, I could have the chili just as the game was starting. So like 10 to 3, 5 to 3. And uh, then I'll watch the first half. And at halftime, again, I'll jump in the shower, put on some nice show clothes, and head down there. And uh, my wife made, I can't tell you how good it was. She made like a killer chili, and it was delicious. And she had all the bowls set out on the counter next to the pot there. And that she had set out uh, chopped green onions, uh, chives, I guess, and a uh, and, uh, big bowl of shredded cheese and a uh, big bowl of sour cream and uh, some chips with melted cheesy spicy thing or something but i looked i I said to her boy oh boy you went to town here it's wonderful and she was going to watch the game she made a big bowl for herself and went downstairs to her office and there's a tv in there she was going to watch in there and well i thought this boy look at this and i made a big bowl for myself and took it into the bedroom with the the doggies were following me and I said to them, you know, I'll always give, well, I'll always give them everything that I have, but I don't think uh, chili and onions and such were the best thing for them. And I had a bowl of this chili, and it was so good, I just sort of darted back in just before kickoff for the game. And I made another bowl, not as big as the first one, but I just said, holy mackerel, this is crazy. It's good. And I took it back in the bedroom and finished that off and just put the bowl on the night table next to me. And I said, all right, here we go. And uh, here comes kickoff. Folks, I went to sleep so quickly. I passed out cold. It was like you got hit by a Frankenstein dart, you know, one of those thunk. And I mean, you lean your head back against the pillow. Good night, Irene. And... I went to sleep so deeply, I didn't see one play. And the next thing I heard was a voice going, and it's halftime. And I just, and sure enough, you, uh, your eyes are all filmy and, and, and you just, oh, 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 what the, I slept, what was the first half, two hours? Folks, I slept every second of it. Didn't see one play, didn't see one huddle, didn't see anything. And I just, well, if, you, if you're like me, well, I just kind of chuckled, laughed it off and said, how do you like that? And I, <clears throat> well, I took the bowl back into the kitchen and rinsed it out. And uh, well, I glanced at all the pots and things sitting around there, but no, I wasn't going to have another bowl of chili there. I just whew, went into our bathroom and brushed my teeth and got in the shower and scrubbed everything and then got out, dried off, got dressed and said, all right, here we go. It was a little later than I, later than I had planned, but I thought I was fine. And I said, how, how do you like that? And driving down in the car, I thought, well, one of these days. But I laughed at it because that's what I think you should do in life at moments like that. Just say, well... The way it happened, though, folks, was exactly 
my perfect American Super Bowl Sunday. I did everything great, but never actually saw any of the game. And we did a good show that night, and that was important too. But you know what? If you're looking for something perfect, try something like that. Next Super Bowl, I don't know what city it's going to be in, but I think maybe a couple of cups of coffee while I eat whatever my wife made may not be a bad idea. I know that, but so do you, because we know the same things. Homer is Homer, and Pluto is a planet. So remember, folks, as always... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. No matter what game it is, no matter how super the Sunday is, be well and we'll see you here next time.